There are some gifts in life that are an oasis for the soul. And we can name hundreds of them. But each gift has its place in nurturing the deepest wellsprings of our human existence. And so in the process of creating space for learning, maturing, and growing, we call these precious gifts the Psalms, at least for the next three weeks. The provision of the Psalms is a provision of Scripture that God gives that uses this image of dry areas, dry places, and how God brings refreshment to it. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 35 and 36. The psalmist says, But he also can turn barrenness into an oasis of water. He can make springs flow into desert lands and turn them into fertile valleys so that cities spring up. Beautiful picture, isn't it? That there is this work of God in the world that wants to bring refreshing life to the dry places. So we began our service this morning in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go and meet God? And there's a variety of answers to that question. But for the next three weeks, we want to make that place the Psalms. The Psalms are a place where we meet with God through the use of metaphor and poetry that stirs our soul in artistic way. The Psalms are an oasis of art and soul, and I think we are familiar with some of them. If I said this morning, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you would know that it's what? Psalm 23, right? Uh, I shall look to the hills. Where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. A short little Psalm 121. There are different kinds of psalms for different occasions in the life of the worship of Israel. There are psalms of lament. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of wisdom. But that's not what we're talking about over the next couple of weeks. What I want to do is take a different direction. So back in 2019, we did a whole summer in the Psalms, and I took particular Psalms and talked about particular Psalms. But in this series, what we want to do is, how are the Psalms essential in our understanding of God? Where is God? Where can I go and meet God? And what is God like? Now suppose the Psalms had been lost. They were never copied, and they were never incorporated into the Old Testament of our Bible. What would we have lost? Well, we would have lost some of the most eloquent expressions of the heart of the writer. The Psalms are among the oldest poems in the world, and they still rank with any poetry of any culture, ancient or modern, from anywhere in the world, they stand head and shoulders above so many of the things that we read in the course of our life. They are powerful. They're full of passion. They 
are filled sometimes with misery, but they are also filled with jubilation. Sometimes it's tender sensitivity, and other times it's powerful hope. And anyone who wants to open themselves up to a refreshed exposure to God and what He is like would open the window of the Psalms, and the Psalms let in a bright light into the dark corners of the human soul. And so these poems are like a good meal after you haven't had one for a few weeks. And so I encourage you to spend time in the Psalms. There's 150 of them in the Psalter, and if you read just one or half of one every day, I think it will have a powerful influence upon what God wants to bring into our experience. Now, most poetry, when you think about it, suffers once it's translated into other languages. And that's true of much English poetry because it's so built so much on rhythm and rhyme. But not the Psalms. The Psalms are a different kind of poetry. And in many ways, it's almost as if the Psalms are a dialogue between God and the writer. And in the Psalms, you'll have faith and doubt, you'll have hope and despair, you'll have joy and sadness. And I think that is why so many people will turn to the Psalms in particular uh, episodes of their life, because they understand that the psalmist has gone through what they have gone through. So what we don't have, unfortunately, with the Psalms is the background to each individual psalm. It escapes us as to what prompted the writer to write a particular psalm. But what we do know is this collection of poems was turned into the hymn book of the nation of Israel. And many of them were sung, and there are musical notations in many of the psalms. So when you go to read a psalm, it will say to be sung to the tune of dot, dot, dot. You'll notice that as part of the heading and so forth. Now, think about this for a moment. This was handed down from generation to generation to generation, and eventually these psalms became the hymn book not only for Old Testament Jews, but also for Jesus and the early church as well. And in many ways, the psalms reflect the worldview that was held by the Jewish people, but handed on to each person of successive generations. And it seems to me there are three core concepts that we're going to look at today and the next two weeks that you'll find in many different types of psalms in the Psalter. There is the standing at the crossroads of time, space, and matter. Time, space, and matter. That comes up frequently in many of the psalms. So this series is going to talk about you and me standing at the threshold of time, space, and matter. And how does that affect our lives? So today we want to talk about time. So there's God's time and there's our time. There's God's space and our space. There's God's glory and there's our glory. But time is something that we all deal with. Time overlaps and intersects at so many different ports of our life. And what we find is that in this poetry, we understand a little bit better that God's time is not necessarily our time, but our time is a part of God's time. So the way we want to begin this morning is by asking a question. And the question is, what is time? 
Have you ever thought about that? What is time? Well, that's what sets our schedule, right? We look at our watch. We look at our calendar. So we look at our watch. We look at our clock, and it's based on seconds, minutes, and hours. We look at the calendar, and it's based on days and months and years. But what are these things designed to do? You know what they're designed to do? Ultimately, they are part of a fourth dimension of reality. And what I mean by that is it's not something we can see, taste, or touch, but it's something that we measure. And what we measure is change. Think about that for a moment. So when we think about time, we are measuring change. So another year has gone by. And you celebrate another birthday. You celebrate another anniversary. You look back after so many of those changes from year to year, and you go, oh, I can't believe I wore that. I can't believe how dark my hair was then versus the way it is now. I can't believe, you fill in the blank, you see, what time does is it marks change. And that's why it's such a popular theme in songs. Think of this for a moment. Does anybody really know what time it is? I've got, got, got no time. Time keeps on slipping into the future. If I could save time in a bottle, time is on my side. If I could turn back time, you can't do that except for one hour once a year. You can't turn back time. So when we think about time, every day we stand at a threshold. And what we do is we mark another day older. We mark another day of experience. And what we find is collectively, they are called a life. And so whether we live 50 years or 100 years, each day stands at the threshold of time and it marks change. So what we're going to do is open now to Psalm 90. So if you have your Bible, turn open to Psalm 90. And I want you to look at these words once again. So in Psalm 90, you'll notice at the beginning, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And then it says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Do you notice the mark of change from one generation to the next generation to the next generation to the next generation? And then he says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, what is it that happens from generation to generation to generation? What happens are several things. Number one is moments that happen in our life that become memories in our life. But it also gives to us an anticipation that I will call movements into tomorrow. So you celebrate a birthday or an anniversary and you go, okay, that's a moment in time. I cut the cake, I blew out the candles, I turned another year older, and I remember back when I was 35, I remember back when I was 25, but I anticipate a movement 
into tomorrow, because I assume this isn't my last birthday, right? Next year on my birthday, I hope to do this or that. So you have three things that are happening from generation to generation. Moments, moments of experience that then become memories, but then it turns into an expectation of what's going to happen tomorrow. And the expectation is things will change into tomorrow and next year. So he says here that as you add all these generations together, eventually we run out of time. Verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. But here's an interesting insight. That the way we measure change, the way we measure time, is not the same to God. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. In other words, this little sliver of time that I call my life is like a quick second in comparison to God, from everlasting to everlasting. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 12, well, teach us to number our days. Teach us to understand that time keeps on ticking, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, the key question becomes, how am I going to use what? My time. How am I going to use my days? How am I going to use my life? So he then goes on in verse 15, and here is his heart prayer. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Now, there's a little bit of background here, and the background is the memory of the Exodus the memory of slavery in Egypt. Certainly, if Moses wrote this, that's what was in his mind. Make us glad for the many days you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to your children. So Moses then looks back and he has some moments. Let my people go that become memories as God delivers the people out of Egypt. And as he looks back, he anticipates movement. Is God done with us? No. Verse 17, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So make us glad. Help us to anticipate tomorrow. Help us to live in the light of it. Another psalmist in Psalm 102, verse 23 and following says it a different way, but here's how it goes. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on throughout all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will all be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So it's the same idea here. The amount of time we have is very short. 
But God is from everlasting to everlasting because he is timeless. So let's try to picture this a little bit. So as I sat down at my computer this past week, I'm trying to think, what is the best way visually to communicate this? So you have God's time that runs from everlasting to everlasting, and our watches wear out from generation to generation, right? Some of them we can keep going, and some of them we throw away. So I want you to imagine with me two lines, two parallel lines. One of them rep representing God's time, which is eternal, no beginning, no end, and our time, which is temporal. So when we think about this, God's time, our time, eternal versus temporary, notice what happens here. God in his timelessness chooses to reveal himself at points in time. So when we think about how God has revealed himself in the course of the generations, we understand that he revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. He revealed himself to Israel through the Exodus. And those are moments experienced at a particular time and in a particular place. Your life is the same. My life is the same. We experience God in the moments of time. It might be a word of comfort that God whispers in your ear. It might be a word of wisdom that God prompts you in making a decision. But you experience God in certain moments of time. And it's not unbroken. That's what the dotted line represents. There are times in our life where we experience God and we know it's God. We feel it's God. We feel close to God. And then six months later we go, like the psalmist, where can I find God? God, where are you? And so ours is not an unbroken line. But God is unbroken in his existence. He continues from eternity past to eternity future. But we experience him only in moments. And when we experience him in moments, something else happens. So our moments become memories. And we look back on our life and we go, God, I remember that time you, you can fill in the blank. And we build those memories, right? One memory is built on top of another. And then in those memories, we desire, we desire for more moments. And so we ask God to continue to meet us in this moment. So notice on this slide, though, God's timelessness extends into tomorrow, but we experience God in the past and the present, but we can only anticipate him into tomorrow because tomorrow is dark. So imagine whether there's these two lines in a room and there's a light that shows on this one light and this light reveals the whole line from wall to wall. But another light is only revealing the line below it a little bit at a time. So that's why on this slide I dimmed that 
into the future. Do you see that? Because we can't see into tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So I have memories. I desire more moments. When will it come? I don't know. But I anticipate the movement of God in my life that I will experience Him tomorrow. Does that make sense to everybody? So we live in a sort of anticipation of meeting God tomorrow. Okay, let's try it again. So God in His timelessness reveals Himself at points in time. He does so powerfully in the Exodus. And Moses draws upon those memories and he draws upon those moments like he had in the wilderness where he meets God in the burning bush. Then he anticipates something into the future, but then he dies. What is it that he anticipated into the future? Going into the promised land. You know the story of Moses, right? He anticipated for 40 years while the nation of Israel is in the wilderness to go into the promised land. He does not make it. But the next generation does. And they go in and they conquer the land and they build their settlements and so forth. However, then they all lose heart. They all wander after other idols. And God brings Babylon and Assyria and they go into exile. And in this moment of time, it seems as though God has abandoned them but in reality, he's anticipating something more into the future, even though we can't see it. We're blind to it. So the exile, exile is another example. And you can put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these from the experiences we read in the Bible. But there is this anticipation. And the anticipation is the expectation that God is not done with us yet. That he is going to meet us into tomorrow. And so these expectations then bring hope, it brings strength, it brings confidence that God is going to be there, even though we can't see it right now. So that brings us then to um, this idea of expecting God to enter time again. Often in God's time, the end is the beginning. Let me say that again. Often in God's time, the end is the beginning because our times are within God's timelessness. So the Psalms, much like life, often move from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. So when you read the Psalms, you'll notice this in the, the lives of the author he has a certain orientation, but something happens, either in his personal life. So many of those type of things are recorded by David as he's being chased by Saul and others. And then a reorientation. He's all confused, but God brings a word or a moment, and he then brings healing to the author, and he then has hope again. Now think about our lives for a moment. That's exactly what happens many times in our lives. We get discouraged, we get depressed, and we, we are dependent upon those moments that produce memories where we know God's hand was with us. And when we allow ourselves 
to look at those, we then gain another hope inside of us that he will do it again tomorrow. And so although the flashlight on the top line reveals God's timelessness, the flashlight on the lower arrow only reveals a little bit at a time. So the psalmist says in Psalm 13, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. Do you see it there? Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But, 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 I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation and I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Do you see what he's doing? He's drawing on the past, those moments. God's been good to me. God's been good to me. God's been good to me. And even though I don't understand the confusion I'm in, right this second, I am going to continue to rejoice because I trust in your unfailing love for tomorrow. So what we find is that our times are within God's timelessness and what seems to be our end is actually just the beginning many times. So this is a little bit of a heady message because it's hard for us to get our arms around this type of thing. However, what I do know is maybe some po poetry will help. So in your liturgy, there is a poem that was written by John O'Donohue. I don't know who John O'Donohue is, but I love this poem, and it's called For the Interim Time. Listen to how it goes. When near the end of day, life has drained out of light and is too soon for the mind of night to have darkened things, no place looks like itself. Loss of outline makes everything look strangely in between. Unsure of what has been or what might come. In this wane of light, even trees seem groundless. In a while, it will be night, but nothing here seems to believe the relief of dark. You are in this time of interim where everything seems withheld. The path you took to get here has washed out. The way forward is still concealed from you. The old is not old enough to have died away, and the new is still too young to be born. You cannot lay claim to anything. In this place of dusk, your eyes are blurred, and there is no mirror. Everyone else has lost sight of your heart, and you can see nowhere to put your trust. You know you have to make your own way through. As far as you can, hold your confidence. Do not allow your confusion to squander this call which is loosening your roots in false ground, that you might become free from all you have outgrown. What is being transfigured in your mind? And what is more difficult and slow to become new? the more faithfully you can endure here, the more refined your heart will become for your arrival in the new dawn. Pretty powerful, isn't it? So what is God doing? 
He's taking our days and He's giving to us hope for tomorrow. But I don't know where tomorrow is going. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand as the old hymn goes. So we are coming to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table today, I want you to think of this invitation to come and take a piece of bread and to take the cup as a moment, a moment where God meets us in this time. He says, eat in remembrance of me, drink in remembrance of me. Maybe we could put it this way. Maybe when we take communion, we are reminded that God enters at a particular point in time in the person of Jesus Christ, first in his incarnation and then in his resurrection, and that then gives to us an expectation that tomorrow is going to be all right. He's gone through death, he's come out the other side, he has conquered the foe, and he gives to us eternal life. So our expectation is twofold. That when I die, when the sand in my hourglass runs out, I will be reunited with those who have gone before me, and I will eventually be resurrected because of his resurrection. And so what we're going to do is have you come forward, and you're going to take the cup, and you're going to take a piece of bread. So in, there's two trays here. The square is gluten-free, the round is gluten. You can take one of those, and then you can take a cup. And when you get back to your seat, just hold those, and then we will eat and drink together as the body of Christ. So we're going to cut the video at this point. I'm going to get the tripod out of the way, and you can come up and take the elements and go back to your seat.